and we are live again again we're back we're back yep uh, to episode one not episode zero episode one and done of mechanically incorrect um i guess since this is technically our first episode we should explain ourselves with the name um which uh i conceived but um you approved, and we kind of yeah. went back and forth between mechanically correct and mechanically incorrect. Um, I know we were originally going with correct, and then something swayed you to go to incorrect. So, w- w- why, why are we? Why is this our name? And I don't know if it was actually. I don't remember correct. I always thought of it incorrect because that may be part of the discussion today on failures, mistakes. But that's usually where we learn at least over here in mechanical engineering. So I always thought incorrect was definitely the most appropriate. Fair enough. Um, I, I just frankly like the like the ring of the thing. I think it... Uh, yeah, isn't there some snappy. show? Uh, you're talking about the one that Bill Maher hosted that was canceled by, uh, by ABC in a most ironic way some 20 years ago? Yeah, I forgot the history there, but yeah, I... Do remember that show? So hopefully that Bill Morris not going to go after us. So on that note, um, <laughs> so I guess so, should we start with department updates? Um, mm. w- what did you have mm. on the docket today, Billy? Because I have uh, got a few oh. things we could talk about. I guess we should talk about the elephant in the room, or I guess that's the wrong animal for this. But apparently we're geese now. I didn't vote on this, but someone did. Yeah, yeah. So we are geese. Um, There was a rigorous process. I wasn't involved, so I can't speak to the exact process, but we had a full mascot committee. We had representation from mechanical engineering on that. Um, I don't know the exact. I wasn't, like I said, involved with the ultimate discussion. I heard... You know, I had some some thoughts on that we can get into. I've also heard other thoughts that this was like a, a Brexit moment, that this was initially a joke, and <laughs> it just took legs like crazy, and here we are. So, yep, and that's our, the official <coughs> mascot of the FAMU FSU College of Engineering in Tallahassee, Florida. We are now geese, so named for the vile waterfowl that 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 act as sentinels around our retention pond and have since ensconced themselves uh, within the very walls of the building, and I guess they're a protected species, so we can't murder them. Um, well, the one thing I do appreciate is, you know, in our staff meeting, I I try to always look at the glass half full, right. And so I brought this up at our staff meeting, and I can't remember the exact description of geese, but I do know that often if you see geese flying in a flock of three, the one in the front is often injured, and the other two behind it are trying to follow it until it heals or it passes on, and then those two will then um, go back to the, the rest of the, the flock. So. Um, there is that camaraderie that we're all here to help each other. You know, we're struggling through our, our courses or whatever in life. Um, that part I like. 
But then in our staff meeting, someone calls me out and says that is basically bullshit. (laughs) 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 Um, Yeah, maybe that's just the geese around here that are a little obnoxious, but I I did fact check that. I have seen that that is the general case with geese. Um, Maybe they don't migrate like they used to. Who knows? But, um, you know. Yeah, I wanted to throw uh, that out. At I least. apologize if it was. I don't think it was me that called you out on that, but I will say that uh, I would have gone with a different animal. I get why they went with the one they went with, but um, uh, I just I, I hate geese. They're <laughs> they're the worst. It's the only animal in all of the the, the entire taxonomy that um, <laughs> that have actually attacked me before. Um, well, you know, they do protect their young. They uh, protect oh, their family, and I can respect that. So uh, that, yeah, that is a positive note, I think. That being said, it looks good on a sticker. and, a, and a, <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't exactly have a, a – doesn't exactly rhyme well or with anything, but, yeah, sure. We're the, we're the engineering geese, um, and we're sticking with it. And uh, – I believe this Saturday is the inaugural Wild Goose Chase, which is a great name for a fun run. That is true. And um, although this episode will likely not premiere before that goes down, we're, we're looking forward to it. Um, so uh, other than that, um, one thing we were going to discuss today was uh, Emmy Seminar. Now, Billy, can mm. you give us a bit of a, just mm. a quick rundown on mm-hmm. what that is and why it started and why we why we have it every Tuesday. So I don't know the full history of this, but you know, just in general, we want to bring in people from outside. Sometimes we'll have people within our department or college or universities speak, but mainly to keep our students up to speed on things that are going on in mainly in in research. However. Um, it depends on who's running it. We often have younger faculty doing this to, to bring in experts from all over the place. So they, they get to get some ex- um, exposure talking to some of the world experts in, in, in their field and then share it with our grad students. I, I took it over this semester and I, I decided to take it in a little bit different direction. We're still doing that. We're, we're still having some technical experts in a variety of fields, mainly in the fields our students are interested in, whether it's aerospace, materials, energy, robotics, mechatronics. We do some of that. But I also wanted to bring in or, or have some folks talk about leadership, talk about career directions, whether it's government labs, industry, academia, compare and contrast those. And so... Um, you know, we started off giving a talk on um, this guy. I've, I've, I've told my um, my wife thinks I have a man crush on this one guy. Um, well, she thinks about, correctly, you do. He talks about extreme ownership. So we had one on that. That was the first one. Um, and each each week to, to take role, I'll have the students just fill out who the speaker was, what was the title, and one interesting thing learned and one one student actually thought the most interesting thing was I have a man crush on Jocko Willink so I I, I did find that interesting which I I don't deny Um, 
the second week, and maybe that's the one you want to get into a little bit more since you missed it, was I went, I dug a little bit deeper since we didn't get into all the different aspects of extreme ownership, but then I got into mindfulness and, and stoic and, and a few other things. Um, so we discussed that, and it was fun. I got a few questions that I hadn't thought about that were in those slides. We could get into that that um, I, I've thought a little bit more about. Um, and then from there, we've had a few different folks, more actually on the career side and leadership. We're starting to get into a little bit more technical area the second half of the semester. So um, attendance has been good. I think the students have enjoyed it from, from what I've heard so far. So it's been good. <laughs> what they're willing to tell us. Uh, yeah, no, I do want to usually pretty honest. I mean, I do want to get into the leadership one. Uh, so that was a, probably a good springboard. And before we get too far off topic um, on it, I do want to talk about, uh, this would be a great spot for me to, if we had a sponsor, I could just, it's like, but first, let's talk about Dan Foss, you know, <laughs> if I wanted to interject hey, with, a, with a fake Dan commercial. Dan has worked with us quite a bit, so and I since appreciate we, those guys. Yeah, so Dan Foss, if you're listening, if you want us to drop you your name for some money, um, call us. You know how to reach we, us. We are always open for opportunities research and education get more students over there doing work with them so you scratch our backs we'll scratch yours <laughs> give you some uh some some exposure that's what all the kids love to be paid in these days um <laughs> that's why they're all on on uh oh, is it only fans because <laughs> oh. of exposure uh i'm sure that works out well for everyone and is a wise and prudent life choice but before we get too far away from the, the seminar talk, um, yeah, I mean, what, what some of the I, I, I do want to talk about some of the experts that we've had. I know we had one of our own mm -hmm. uh, faculty, Lance Cooley, was mm -hmm. right after you mm -hmm. talking about um, uh, how to how to get uh, work in industry as mm -hmm. opposed to uh, for agencies, and what was yeah. his. Uh, were there yeah. any interesting takeaways that you remember off the top of your head from that yeah, one? Yeah, so um, just give everyone a background. If you don't know Dr. Lance Cooley, he, he come from a uh, Department of Energy. So he was there for quite some time. Um, so he's brought an interesting perspective into our department on a variety of systems level and, and systems integration, but uh, a lot of applications in um, applied superconductivity. So if, if, you, if you're not familiar with the College of Engineering, it's right next door to National High Magnetic Field Lab, and, and they do, and, and Dr. Cooley, Dr. Lablasjee, and Hellstrom, they do a lot of work um, in superconductivity. Also, Todd Kalmatani, who's in that area, uh, does a lot of interesting work on electron microscopy. And so to, to get these fundamental materials into a big complex magnet that generates the largest static magnetic fields in the in the world um, and if you if you get on Twitter I forget the Twitter handle but there's a great one for uh, the magnet that shows that it it never rains or or it always rains over the magnet depending on how they apply the fields so if you find that Twitter handle you'll see that we control the weather over here and um, around the College of Engineering. But anyway, so getting these materials um, that are very complex, that have this uh, really interesting superconductivity property down at low temperatures, 
into this huge magnet that's a two to three stories tall, I believe, and some of the bigger ones. That takes a lot of work with a lot of different people. And then if you take it even a much larger step and talk about the Hadron Collider. So they have a lot of programs where they work with those folks, and now we're talking about just ginormous programs, some of the things that he was at doing at the Department of Energy. So he, he described to the students this, these different perspectives on being in a research group within our, our college or uh, one of the centers around the college versus being in one of these bigger programs where you, you may have a very important um, aspect of this problem but then it's going into something that's got hundreds, maybe thousands of engineers and managers that are all coming together to see this thing. And, and these programs take, you know, more than a decade often. So it, it takes a lot of foresight, a lot of, a lot of engineering, of course, and uh, a lot of risk to um, figure out how to mitigate those risks and, and bring these things to, to light and they've been quite successful in, in, you know, these particle accelerators to find all sorts of interesting stuff. Yeah, and um, I've, I've always been fascinated, just like you said, this kind of the confluence of, uh, of disciplines mm -hmm. that go into um, just making that lab run. Mm -hmm. uh, I never thought about, for instance, the application of cryonics mm -hmm. into you know, how a magnet works. But mm -hmm. yeah, like you said, you have to have those components at super low temperatures to make it work as designed. And um, it's not something that a non-scientist like myself would uh, would find apparent. But, mm -hmm. um, but as with anything, I mean, as with any discipline, the details are often underneath the surface, not unlike the, you know, the iceberg analogy. Yeah, um, I mean, they have... A you know, the engineers and professors are, are awesome, but they have some of the most amazing staff scientists, too, because when you go down to those cryogenic temperatures, whether it's in liquid helium or liquid nitrogen, you're talking 77 Kelvin or below, and now you've got a solid material that you've cooled down to those temperatures. How do you do that without it? They're often brittle. Are they going to break? Are you going to spend all this time making this and then bring it down to that temperature to create a, uh, a magnetic field, and then the whole thing breaks? So they, they have amazing scientists and staff um, personnel that can test these properties, these thermomechanical properties, down at those temperatures to understand what's going on there. And so um, sometimes I wish I could uh, drop my job and just go over there and work with those folks with my hands just seeing what they do to, to test these materials so yeah they they do some amazing work over there what, what's stopping you from doing it then <laughs> email forms um uh, you know yes <laughs> the spice of life um <laughs> and uh for some of us like myself that's unfortunately truer than we'd like it to be but nonetheless but we have gotten a little too far off topic so let's um bring it back to why i brought up the seminar i guess we should start from the top before we mm -hmm. get into your talk on leadership which i wasn't present for so i do mm -hmm. want to dissect based on the slides i'm looking at right now yeah um let's talk about that first one again going back to to jocko willing with extreme yeah. leadership i 
on a conceptual level, I could I I really like that that was our first one out the gate. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of want to understand your mentality. Why why did, did we pick this one first? Um, you know, I I think a lot of things can be solved if you just take ownership. Whether you know, it's always easy to point the finger. You can always point blame at someone else, but I've yet to find a situation where you put blame on someone else and it really solves a problem. You know, you you have to mentor people and say, hey, you shouldn't have done this in this situation. This may have been different. And if you take the right tact and help someone along, that that's fine. But often that person made that mistake because you didn't mentor them in the right way in the first place. And so if you if you take ownership of that, then you get better, and then usually the other person will s- say, you know, I could have probably done this. Um, so it usually benefits both both parties. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I completely agree, and uh, hence why I agreed to help with that one. But if... <laughs> It, it really goes just like our, our, our episode zero of the podcast that will likely never see the light of day. Um, maybe it will in a clandestine way, but um, uh, th- it did not particularly go as we had planned, uh, which is another thing we'll talk about uh, today. But uh, I, I, it, oh. it, it, it oh, yeah. fell apart in a most comical way at first, <laughs> can, uh, yeah, starting yeah, yeah. With, the, with the tech yeah. side. Yeah, so I should take full ownership of that because it took like 10 minutes to get this thing hybrid so you know we're still coming out of the pandemic we had a lot of people or at least um, a decent percentage online so i tried to get this online in a in a room that i hadn't been in in about two years i guess and so you go in there an hour before or at least 30 minutes and i get everything set up looks good sounds good and then, of course, presentation starts, and things don't go quite as planned. So I, I had this quick um, video off of Twitter I was going to show of um, Wawa and what you can buy at Wawa. <laughs> so you, you, you would just have to go and, and, and find these slides. So it's a, I guess, to give a, a quick breakdown on this. So there's... Um, I, I had a running joke from my class last semester. So uh, mostly, surprisingly not, most of the undergrad students here in engineering don't know who Jocko was. So they, they found some of these videos pretty hilarious. So there's one on Jocko Go where it's at a convenience store. And so I thought, oh, this will be a good icebreaker to start with because the video is just hilarious. And so we get it up. We can't get the sound to work between in the room and online. Apparently, the sound's just working great online, but we can't hear anything. So I'm narrating the whole thing. (laughs) And uh, I've watched it at least uh, 20 times, so I can just narrate the whole thing. And so we do that, and it's done. I was like, okay, that's funny. Get a few laughs, and then we keep going. And then it's probably 30 seconds or a minute in you're you're on zoom so you can see chats and i'm thinking okay people are just chatting about this and then they say do you know we can hear it and it's on auto repeat (laughs) it was a twitter video that's why yeah so it'd been on auto repeat the whole time so they they got uh, a, a full few 
three or four or five times Jocko video of Jocko Go. So um, they, they definitely know who it is now. And, uh, you know, I, I think the last chat was just LOL. <laughs> Um, so they thought it was funny. So uh, it was a great. Uh, <coughs> if you're gonna bomb, you're bombing in uh, yeah, company was, that loves you. That's, yeah. that's all you can say. Um, yeah, no, it, it it was a little rusty. Um, I think it spoke to the fact that it hadn't been done in a couple years. I mean, I, ideally, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, we would have, uh, you know, probably gone in there the day before and set up and made everything work. But you know. Sometimes we're a little too confident for our own good uh, when we have precedent and things. When we're used to things going our way, we don't we don't think about um, the contingencies. And it, I just love the irony and the fact that our very first um, very first seminar this year was on extreme ownership, and now we need to extremely own all the ways it was messed up. But um, I mean, if if I may levy uh, a criticism, I mean uh, my constructive thought is that that whole presentation could have been truncated some um as your subordinate i'm not going to tell you what to do but perhaps as somebody who has a background in performance always open as someone who has a background in performance and theater and presentations i probably should have offered to have been your stage manager when sat there with the stopwatch and snapping my fingers trying to get it hurried along because it ran a little long too, but it, um, I think ultimately though it was it was a really great springboard for our um, discussions to come, which led the next week immediately into your talk on uh, leadership, which uh, I was not present for. So that's what I was wanting to talk about now, because I think it's very important, you know, in in society, you know, broadly speaking, right now. I personally feel that there's a sense that we're all kind of collectively rudderless because there really isn't much leadership in the world. There's not, you look at our global powers that be and when they speak, you know, without naming names, there's some of them who give the impression that they're not really the ones in charge. You know, they're looking at their handlers for approval. Um, And I'm being deliberately obtuse because I don't want to get overtly political on our engineering podcast, but... I think there's a void for in, for, for leadership, um, broadly speaking. Uh, just the adults in the room don't want to be the adults. So how do you change that? I think it does kind of start with turning people who are who have been primed to be followers their whole lives into leaders in their own lives. And um, I think st- inculcating that into our students is a great way to, whether or not they go on to be in leadership positions in their career, I mean, just being the master of their own ships, so to speak. Uh, And it's not about positions of power. It's about a mindset that'll stay with you for the rest of your life. Um, I see you you opened this with, and I really wish we were uh, recorded right now uh, on camera so I could could show the slide where you have a Venn diagram of career choices where they uh, (laughs) overlap with uh, uh, skills and traits with, with, careers you have uh, OCD and math skills overlapping for accountants problem solvings and people skills overlapping for management uh, math skills and problem problem solving overlapping for engineers um, <laughs> drinking and people skills 
uh, aligned with salespeople, um, <laughs> and drinking and heartlessness aligned with being a lawyer, and OCD and heartlessness aligned with human resources. Um, no comment as to the accuracy of that, but um, great way to open. Uh, your overview, you have four bullets where you, you know, looking internally, leading uh, others, dealing with bullshit, and um, you know, additional reading. Um, you then went into a series of slides, uh, which I was, you know, I asked you about this before we started recording, because I wasn't sure what to make of it. It was a bunch of black and white photos from an American photographer named uh, Eric Pickersgill, if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, and I guess the premise was uh, he digitally removed uh, the phones from photos of people in which they were holding them and staring at them. Could you explain for us your rationale and, and, and yeah. leading with that? Yeah, so I think before we got started, I was mentioning, I, I think I heard this from Sam Harris's uh, podcast, or maybe I, I have his mindfulness app. And so, so that was really the point is uh, being mindful of present situation that we got into a little bit later. And so I, I went through a series. It was like, I don't know, quite a few pictures, 10 or so pictures of different situations where it's it's a few people sitting together and they're on their phones. So you can imagine people are just in, indulged in whatever Twitter feed that they're, I'm sure they're going to, genuinely remember and cherish for years to come right um so you go through these and if, if I, I wish we could show some of these right now um the last one so neil if you would go to the last one i i really like that one because it, it has this this guy and it's either his girlfriend or his wife is sitting in his lap and they're just sitting there very lovingly together, and they're both on their phones. And they have the most miserable look on their face. And I just say in the, in the presentations, like, look how happy they look. <laughs> you know, they're, they're both sitting there together. but It's the exact same face. Yeah, and they're, you know, they're, they're sitting together, and they're so close, but they are just so far apart, at least mentally. They're just, it could be on different sides of the world, depending on what they're looking at on their phone. So... Um, really talked about yeah you really got to be mindful because on the next slide I had just a picture of a compass and just trying to figure out yeah how do you navigate when you your your brain is to some degree you know social media has really figured out a lot of ways to keep you on that on that device or on their platforms and so hey, we just took a break to at least think about that situation and then um, how to at least be cognizant of it. Yeah, I mean, stand-up comics now have a practice of, they don't confiscate phones at the door. They, mm. they, they snap your phone into a, uh, I guess, an electronically locked pouch or something that's like a, that you keep with you at your seat so that you okay. can't look at it during the show. But that's... That's something that's very new, past like huh. three, four, five years, something like that, uh, where people, where this culture of distraction has gotten so big that people can't even sit through an hour-long comedy show that they're enjoying and probably spent hundreds of dollars to attend in some yeah. cases, yeah, and they, they they just can't resist that lure. Um, 
so definitely something uh, to address out the gate. Um, for the benefit of our listening audience, what is mindfulness? Uh, I mean, I know what it is, but I just <laughs> oh, <laughs> tell me in your words. Put me on the spot. What's huh? mindfulness to you? Because so, I, I think we may have discussed in a private conversation that obviously there's uh, some varying definition. So there, there is some vagueness, and we were talking about that with uh, one of our other staff the other day because she, she didn't have a, a good understanding of it either since it's, it's kind of hard to grasp. Fortunately, we have an expert coming in any seminar in a week or two that I think will give a better perspective on that. Um, and so I've been delaying this this way to try to think of a good definition <laughs> of mindfulness. But I... I would say, in my opinion, it's it's really just um, being focused on the present, what's in front of you. Like, I at least turn my Bluetooth off so my phone or my, my watch doesn't start buzzing on me right here so I don't get distracted, I don't have my phone in front of me. So uh, that's the way I see it, is just being aware of the present moment, what's going on in front of you. Well said, and, and then you're... Next point that you pivoted to was uh, five exercises to get started with stoicism. Mm. Now, what's stoicism? Mm. So those slides go through um, a list of things that I, I follow Ryan Holiday. So he is this daily stoic. And so I, I pulled a, f a few things from there. And so, man, I'm, I'm really getting the, the quiz today on... Uh, different things yeah, we have to define our terms as if they are unknown to the listener otherwise we're yeah. talking down to the audience yeah so what is the best definition of being stoic um i guess you know maybe if i give you an example so over over covid you know we were all at home my kids were at home so it was like a half mile loop that I would take with my youngest in middle school, and we would talk about all sorts of stuff. But oftentimes, you know, in middle school, you know, middle school is probably the worst time to ever be in grade school. And so um, you get some kids that are just totally awful to each other. And so I would always tell Emory, it's like, you know, they can say all these things, but you get to choose how you respond. And so that that's the, the biggest characteristic I, I pull from being stoic. You know, people can say all sorts of things or you can experience things, but it's up to you how you decide to respond. Um, that's your choice. Now, easier said than done, of course, but uh, those are the things that I try to do and follow the stoic philosophy. I'd be interested uh, when you think about Stoics in the classical sense, you know, we're talking about going back to the men of antiquity. They obviously don't record when they stumble in their own Stoicism. I mean, I, I, I'm sure Seneca at some point told someone to go fuck himself, you know, I mean, like, oh, yeah. not exactly the Stoic. Uh, yeah, it uh, certainly wasn't perfect, right? Uh, so, but who is? And um, yeah, and I'm looking at the definition, dictionary definition of Stoicism right now, and I'm seeing there's uh, two Two definitions. The first, the, the simple one, is the endurance of pain or hardship without the display of feelings and without complaint. 
Um, and then it expounds in the second one to say, an ancient Greek school of philosophy founded at Athens by Zeno of Citium. The school taught that virtue, the highest good, is based on knowledge. The wise live in harmony with the divine. Reason, also defined as fate or providence, that governs nature and are indifferent to the vicissitudes of fortune and to pain and pleasure. And I cannot yeah. believe I actually pronounced that that word correctly. Uh, I hope I did. But yeah, no, I, I think it's a good thing to pivot to. I mean, uh, as I was saying during our extreme ownership um, presentation, uh, during my, uh, I quoted um, Hogarth Hughes from The Iron Giant, this oh, yeah. famous quote, you are who you choose to be. And that's a great uh, expression of individualism, but it's also, I think, a great reflection of stoicism. Because, I mean, we are but the sum of our actions. And... Um, <clears throat> at least to the outside. And I do think that that's a, uh, a great uh, starting point from which one can, can uh, begin to conduct themselves as a fully actualized human being. Um, so you have uh, uh, five exercises, as we said, to get started with so a person can, uh, before we pivot to those, um, why in your opinion is stoicism important for leadership? Before I explain <laughs> what you put in your slides, eh? um, like in a nutshell, I mean. Well, as you know, in, in this comes back, I think, to the beginning when you were about to go down this deep, dark path of politicians and leadership or lack thereof, I guess. And, and I would argue that those are all leaders. There's good leaders and there's bad leaders. And, um, you know, when you, when you are in that position, I guess, where you, you have to work with a lot of people. So maybe you're leading from the front. So say if we just take that example right here. Um, things aren't always going to go the right way. People are going to get upset. Um, there's going to be... A lot of things that you're not going to be aware of, you're going to be hit blindsided, and um, you're going to have to respond in some way or not. And so um, you can respond using the monkey mind, just, you know, those things. <laughs> I'm no different than anyone else. I think those things too, but usually I have to first think, okay, well, what if I was in their position? And not just if I took myself and put myself in that position, but what if I was that person? Because, you know, I've experienced certain things in my life, and everyone has experienced the, the worst possible thing that they've experienced, and that's the worst possible thing. But another person has experienced a whole other set of things. And so putting yourself in their shoes, you got to think about what's the worst possible thing in, in their situation. So when they come to you, and they're pretty upset about this situation. And so the first thing I could do, maybe if it's a situation where I've done all those things with no problem, I could just tell them that you shouldn't be worried about that. <laughs> I've done all that and some more. So go just... Just figure it out. Um, 
that's not going to help the situation. So you, you really have to just put things in perspective and then come up with a solution that's going to help the mission or whatever your organization's moving towards. Um, it's not all about you. you. As long as ultimately if you drop the ego, and uh, you can get, usually get stuff done. But if you don't, then you're in for a long road. It's going to be rough. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm jumping the gun a little bit here because you mentioned dropping the ego. I know that that's also something you got into when you were, um, again, discussing Jocko Willing's book, uh, that the, the greatest quality in a le- any leader is humility. And ego is the antithesis of humility. So um, it checks out what you're saying when you put it in that context. Um, now to the five lessons of, from, or five exercises from Stoicism that you get into, uh, the first one you asked is, is this within my control? Um, which I think is where you want to start with that. The single most important practice in Stoic philosophy is differentiation between what we can control and what we can't, what we have influence over and what we do not. Then we focus on what is within our control. And that's a direct quote from you. Um, yeah, and I, I pulled a lot of those from Ryan Holiday. I think it come off of his um, website. But yeah, yeah, I uh, put those in the slides because I think all those five are pretty useful to get through life. Yeah, number two is uh, train perception to avoid good and bad, which is similar to kind of my upbringing in, in Taoism, uh, which my dad had introduced me to at a young age. Um, it's not so much that there's no good or bad in the world. Of course, there are both. But you, at a certain point, you have to learn that both are necessary for the other to exist. Um, yep. But, you know, there's no good or bad to the practicing Stoic. There is only perception, and you control perception. Um there are those who would take you to task for that kind of reduction. Yeah, you know, but, when uh, I think about it that way, you know, there there should be good and bad. Um, and I'm not, certainly not a, a great Stoic philosopher, so there may be some nuance to that to, to understand those things. Well, I'll give but, a practical example. You stub your toe, you cuss, it hurts. You can't just be like, oh, that's just your perception that it hurts. It doesn't necessarily... <laughs> doesn't necessarily um, address the, the, the issue at hand. And that also, I, I, I would say the same example applies to your, again, I'm, I'm jumping forward, which I'm terrible for, but uh, number five is amor fati, which is love everything that happens. You treat each and every moment, no matter how challenging, as something to be embraced, not avoided. But that stub toe and the, uh, the greater s- scheme of things, it's hard to want to embrace that, but the one good thing about it is um, going now to number three, memento mori, meditate on your death. Uh, to quote Marcus Aurelius, that you could leave life right now. Let that determine what you do and say and think. Okay, I stub my toe. It hurts, but at least I have a toe to stub. And that's kind of the memento mori mindset where it's it's not that things don't matter and it's not that the trials and tribulations of life don't have profound impact on us, but life is a finite thing. So all things as they come to us 
only matter as much as we allow them to matter with that in mind. Um, and, and if none of this makes sense right now, because um, it's too abstract or, 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 or whatever, that's okay. I mean, th these are lifelong lessons. And part of why I think we, we effectively had two similar topics back to back is uh, a matter of drilling it in to people, because it really has to be drilled in. This is something that uh, that is a, a, a conscious choice to committing these lessons uh, and implementing them into your daily routine. Uh, so here, here's one that's not as abstract that I usually try to think about. That was number three, I think. Uh, that was no, yeah, number four. Is death. Um, so usually one of the good things about working at a state university, whenever I send an email, that thing is public. And so whenever I send an email, I assume that anyone can see that. Of course, anyone could forward it anyway. And so I do my best to try to be tactful in any email I send. And um, I think that's a good thing. Because then I, I try to do it whether I'm using, you know, Gmail where they can read everything. <laughs> or I, I just... Um, I just got a new account on Proton Mail. I don't know if you have Proton Mail, but I've it's never even heard of it prior to this conversation. It's fully encrypted. So if you do if we do need to have some conversations that aren't read by Google, you you would have to have your own Proton Mail because if I forward it to that, then of course um, they'll read it. But the the point is that um, I think that's a good thing that you think carefully about how you talk to other people. Um, that doesn't mean that you're not um, honest and forthright, but you, you put it in the right light so that it's it, it comes across in the right way. Well, yeah, I mean, considering your words tactfully, it's not just a leadership quality. I, this is a quality for any uh, fully actualized, decent human being. You, yeah. you have to have some degree of empathy to be a part of a community um whether or not it's not just a, a matter of email communication i mean it's treating people like people um that's certainly part of it and then of course there's also just the matter of, of personal consequence for what you say especially in a written format like that you can't despite what some people think you can't just undo an email because you recall it we can still read it we received it already so to any colleagues reading that who think their recalled emails make a difference they don't um <laughs> but uh to still the, hilarious to the point at hand um yes uh words matter the way that we communicate with others matters and people would be surprised how many of us go through all of our days and, and and don't really apply that in a way that's meaningful uh, and then they wonder why they're not getting ahead in life it's like well you're uh, there could be a number of things to diagnose but um communication skills and this is something i've said and something i said during my segment at the uh, extreme ownership talk is that your communication skills is like the one skill that will follow you your entire life because you're always going to be communicating with people and, um, you know, in a job environment, in any kind of administrative or uh, um, information uh, work environment, 
could not be more critical than in that setting. You um, know, I keep waiting for one of the employers to come to me and ask, it's like, what group of students do you have that are really good at answering multiple choice? I've, I've yet to find those employers that are good at, that want that. So yeah, I totally agree. Uh, you have to be a good communicator. Although I will say, and this was, um, you know, we, we had a faculty meeting on Zoom a while back, and I recorded it because a few couldn't make it, and then I forgot to, to stop record at the end, and so I had uh, one or two faculty stick around, and we were just chatting about stuff, and I'm too lazy to go cut this out, so I just post the whole thing, I, and I just wanted to see if anyone actually watches it. There, there's a few I know that do, because they come back, but... Anyway, I was talking to one faculty who was at a conference, and they were talking about someone gets up, and they're like, they were railing about taking derivatives and learning calculus. And uh, the, the faculty knew that that's uh, something I like. And I think you really do need to know these things to, to design systems. And uh, I said, students just need to learn technical writing. Uh, okay, fair enough. But if you don't have anything technical to write about, what are you, what are you gonna do? Yeah, I was right? gonna say, how can you apply what <laughs> yeah. you've learned if you haven't actually learned what you intend to write about? Yeah, so it's a little bit of both. You you gotta have the yin and yang. If you don't have the technical content, then what's the point of learning technical writing? Um, so you gotta have both. Reminds me of a uh, quote I read recently that I've been reflecting on lately. Well, it wasn't really a quote. It was a description of someone who wrote a book that was, uh, let's see, how do I say this gently? Um, well, I'll just say the way that it was described. It'll speak for itself. But uh, said that this is a person who seemed to know very much about a subject on which they understood little. And I've been thinking about that lately because how many so-called experts in society today fit that bill to a T. Is this the uh, Dunning-Kruger effect? Did I hear you right? Um, I mean, I think that applies here, but that was not uh, what I was specifically referring to. Um, but yeah, it, it's just, uh, it's interesting how many of us, uh, and I won't even exempt my, myself <coughs> here, because when I start you know, on a soapbox, I don't always necessarily know what I'm talking about. It didn't stop me from saying it. Um, uh, that's the last but, part of my talk. But I stopped short of, well, I didn't get to that yet. <laughs> but you know, I, I tend to stop short about rolling, writing a 300-page book about a subject that I don't intimately have knowledge of. And uh, you'd be surprised. A, a, a lot of the, uh, the pop psychology books, mm. for instance, Oh man, uh, they'll publish anything these days. These mm. folks, um, which, uh, but so anyway, moving on. Uh, I think we we did. I kind of went out of order because I mentioned uh, Mor Fati, which was uh, a good lesson. But uh, the one I want to focus on next is the last one we didn't get to, which was number four: practice negative visualization, which. I'm interested to hear your perspective on this. So basically that's just when you, uh, and I'm, I'm quoting Dr. Oates here, this is um, imagine things that could go wrong or be taken away from us. It helps us prepare for life's inevitable setbacks. How do you apply that in your own life, Billy? Mm. 
Oh, my own life. I wasn't ready for that <laughs> one. Well, you wrote apartment. the rules, so how are you going to walk uh, that walk, man? Own life, huh? Yeah. Uh, I think it's pretty easy. I, I think from just evolution, we're we're always trying to avoid the 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 tiger that's going to take us out, right? So, um, to some degree, it, it comes natural. Um, so I'm I'm teaching a class right now on Bayesian statistics, and so most of the things in there we think about in terms of probabilistic thinking. And I guess to some degree that helps, but you can also get in trouble. Like I often tell my students the, uh, the turkey problem. I think I've told you this. Now, what is the turkey problem? Um, so just very briefly, that in, in, in Bayesian statistics, you can get in trouble with this. Because um, without going into the, uh, the full depth of... Bayesian uncertainty analysis. The turkey problem is, imagine if you're a turkey on the farm, you get up one morning at 8 a.m., the farmer comes out, feeds you, you, you get your, your fee, you're good to go for the day. Next morning, the farmer comes out, you get the food again, same time. You get in this rhythm over a few weeks, every day, so you know, I'm going to get up this morning, I'm going to get fed, everything's good. And then Thanksgiving comes around a couple of weeks beforehand, and a farmer doesn't have food, he has something else, and you get your head chopped off. Um, so it's those situations that you, you really have to be careful about, uh, those fat tails or thick tails, and sorting those out is a really hard problem. You know, making those decisions about what you're going to do, what paths you're going to take um, just comes down to doing, I guess this was number four, the pre-mortem analysis to figure out, you know, figuring out where you're going to die and then just making sure you don't end up in that place and then you're, you're okay. I'm struggling to apply this to turkeys just because I don't know about, you know, the level of cognizance that they have. And uh, whether or not that actually, uh, they actually have the capacity to, to contemplate mortality. But let's assume that they do. I mean, shoot, dude, I'm the turkey every morning when I wake up and decide, oh, do I really want to go to work today? Well, I like getting paid. I like not, I like not getting fired. So um, that's my negative visualization right there. I just picture, <laughs> hmm, what would my wife think if I just decided, nah, I'm not going to have an income anymore. And, uh, and, you know, for some of us, those negative visualizations, they, they come real natural, and the, the solutions that you come up from them are, are real easy. So um, it doesn't always come easy. And I, I think negative visualization in, in, a, in a, a less fight-or-flight um, situation might be more helpful. I mean, there's situations where I think a situation in which one feels helpless it actually can be a, a a more motivating factor um especially if, uh, for me if, if you already feel that things are are in dire straits um it, it, yeah i think if when, once you become helpless then i think it becomes even tougher 
you know, I think when you still have some fight left to make those choices, it's not as hard. But yeah, helpless get, wasn't the right word. I didn't yeah, mean to. Once, once you're you're helpless, you're kind of screwed. Yeah, but <laughs> when you get to that point, yeah, you really need some outside influence. But uh, I, I think the the other simpler cases, I, I guess, are 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 you going to have that slice of pie? Ah, like, yes, that's you know, a much better. What is what is the consequence scenario. of that? And you're like, uh, yeah, I had one last night, but I can do it one more time the second night in a row. You know, two nights in a row, that's not that big a deal. I'll be I'll be good to go the next morning. I'm still gonna get up and work out. And then uh, you wake up the next morning and um, you hit that alarm. And you're like, okay. Um, I'll miss that workout one morning, and then here you go. So, so negative visualization then is good when it comes to building discipline yeah. and making good when cultivating a habit of saying no to things you like. And yeah. so I can I can definitely see that being much more helpful in those instances where because uh, it's hard to say no to things you like. Especially if they yeah. make you feel good, like a nice slice of pie before bed. Yeah. Um, but then when you think about the consequences of the calories and the sugar and the carbohydrates and how it's going to make you feel the next morning, and suddenly that succulent slice of pie didn't, doesn't smell so good anymore. It doesn't have that same allure. So um, I you think know, keeping ourselves from our, our baser traits is... Yeah. Uh, it's good for that. You know, I've heard that in, in, when you talk about, oh, yeah, this this makes me comfortable, right? Um, I've heard this word, um, distraction versus, is it traction? You know, the, the key is action in there. And I've heard, you know, coming back to what I mentioned in the beginning about social media and all of those distractions, um, I, I heard, I'm forgetting who said this, but uh, recently I heard that this is not really social media's fault. There's always going to be these things around. Um, it's really these distractions because they make us feel better, feel comfortable. And so whether it's social media or whether I come into my office, I'm like, yeah, I'm really going to get this proposal done this morning. I'm going to sit down. I think, you know, I could, I need to clean off my desk or I really need to check a few emails, you know. Uh, Why does our brain do that to us? Yeah, I, I think it's really because it makes you feel more comfortable. It's hard to do the hard work. And so, you know, this idea of distraction is really comes down to I'm going to feel more comfortable just because it's going to be good. I'm going to get my desk all clean so then I can do the real hard work. Um, so, yeah, uh, I'm not going to blame Facebook on it. I'm going to blame just human behavior. you got to be cognizant of you got to do the hard work. Yes, but what Facebook and other modern amenities have made easier for us is exactly that kind of complacent living that we're all in the age of podcasts and what have you more uh, 
accustomed to now. So I mean, I, I really, I really think I think we've talked about this before, but we're we're addicted to comfort in our society. I mean, we have a, we have a society that is not just addicted to comfort, but a society that tailors itself around the gen, the active generation of more comfort, which is not a bad thing. I'm not anti-comfort. I like to be comfortable as much as the next person, but. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, have we have we achieved peak comfort? I mean, comfort is not necessary. I mean, comfort is not on your list of virtues here that you have. It's not on your stoic <laughs> breakdown of of ways to lead a good life. And you know, you'd be hard pressed to find somebody who's anti comfort necessarily. Mm. But I think there is a reason why it hasn't been held up as a virtue. What do you think? Yeah, if I point back to where we started with. Uh who I have a man crush on. So I don't know if he or some of these other folks I listen to would uh, agree with, with this comfort. But ultimately, I, I think it comes down to, is it a, a tactical decision or a strategic decision? You know, tactical, I'm going to make this short-term decision. I'm going to have that slice of pie. Or strategics, like, no, I'm not going to have that. I know it's not good for me. Um, I'm not going to be able to be at my peak in the morning if I want to get up and exercise. No, I'm not going to do it. I'm looking long-term. I want to live long, healthy life, so I'm not going to do that, and I'm going to get up the next morning and get some exercise in. So, yeah, I think it comes down to short-term or long-term decisions. Well, another luminary on on your your list of uh, man crushes is uh, Wim Hof, mm. who uh, yeah. has the Wim Hof. Uh, uh, if I'm pronouncing his name wrong, then I apologize. I think it's just but, Wim Hof, uh, whatever. But you know, his whole motto or credo is you know being comfortable with the uncomfortable, and he's got yeah. his breathing method, which uh, you'd have to explain it to me again. It's something to do with extreme cold. Mm. Uh, I guess cold aids the, the so, breath. When I first, I can't remember where I first come across this guy, but it was pre-COVID, and so it was perfect because I come across this and I was like, this guy sounds like some kind of cult leader. And then I started looking into it, and he had this article in Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, so a bunch of scientists tested him on this, and, and basically he says that you can use a certain breathing technique. He does like a hyperventilation technique like breathe deeply 30 times hold your breath do that three or four times and he compliments that with ice bath and, and, th- and there's some questions on whether one or, or two one or the other the ice bath or breathing or both complement each other but um in this one paper scientists hooked him up and he claimed oh, i can control my uh, autonomous nervous system and so uh, they exposed him to a, uh, it was an inert version of, um, I'm forgetting what now, some kind of E. coli, I, I, I think. And so you, you were supposed to get an immuno response from this. And so he was able to wield his autonomous nervous system and uh, respond and didn't really get sick. So the scientists thought, okay, this guy is some kind of, X-Man, you know, he's got these super genes, right? He's the Michael Phelps of breathing. 
So he said, no, give me X number. Like, I think it was like 12 people, and he trained them doing this, and they had the same response. And so I was like, okay, it's pre-COVID. He can hopefully keep from getting sick what could hurt me doing some breathing and ice bath. And so, yeah, I've been doing it ever since. And uh, I don't know if I've gotten covid I've never tested positive, but... Um, Has it helped your breathing in other ways? Or? Um, I, I do notice when I've done half Ironman, if, um, if you breathe through your nose, I can at least do this on the bike, on the run, it's hard, but if you're breathing through your nose, like there, I've read, I confess, I've read a whole book on just breathing. Uh, there's another guy, I think his name's Nestor, He's talked about not just breathing these different techniques, but breathing through the nose. Um, it gives you another gear in terms of, I guess, getting enough oxygen through the system to the to the muscles. So it makes a difference, at least for me. No, I think that's kind of the same principle between uh, behind Zen meditation as yeah, well. I mean, be. it's. Um, Minus the um, ice the bath. ice bath <laughs> aspect yeah. to it, um, but also ah oh shoot I lost my train of thought I'm gonna cut this out even when we do the editing. Um, so moving on from that, uh, you also included in your your leadership breakdown a quote from Seneca in which he discusses his riches. He says, and I quote. For the wise man does not consider himself unworthy of any gifts from fortune's hands. He does not love wealth, but he would rather have it. He does not admit into his heart, but into his home. And what wealth is his, he does not reject, but keeps, wishing it to supply greater scope for him to practice his virtue. And nowhere in that quote does he mention um, being comfortable. Mm. So <laughs> the, what, what we were good. discussing... Um, I want to come back to that for a moment, um, just because I think we have sat down together and talked about it. Have we reached peak comfort in society? I mean, is there a, a point at which we've just become too comfortable for our own good? And have we surpassed that point? I mean, I, um, I think you could argue either way, but from my perspective, I... I I've been more inclined than not lately to think, yeah, I think we're, uh, we, we've reached the precipice. I mean, human beings, we still got a lot of progress to go as far as, uh, becoming more complete souls, but, um, I mean, we certainly haven't solved all of society's problems, but we are, um, positioned now for, a point in history where we don't really have a lot of like real personal problems. I mean, people do, but they're not, it's, it's not the tiger chasing us anymore. For instance, we're not, it, we don't have the same evolutionary challenges that we used to. I mean, we're, we're pretty cushy. Many of us just work in an office for nine hours a day, um, which, you know, we're actually so comfortable that it's not good for us physically. You know, I mean, we, those of us who work office jobs know that you, you, uh, the variety of ailments you can get, you get obesity, you get diabetes, you get uh, all sorts of, of, of nerve issues just from sitting down all day. 
uh, that you have to actually take breaks to move around and you still get these ailments. Um, that's just one example, but our bodies were made for, for levels of high activity for long periods of time. And we've gotten very much away from that. Now we've also had great exam, uh, great advancements by that same virtue. We've, um, we've got cars for instance, in the past 125 years, uh, which have, allowed enabled us to traverse long distances in a very short period of time we can do more stuff and go more places that is a net good but it's also made us lazy in the long term um do you i mean what do you think you agree disagree um, i think we we always want to innovate right and in general you want to do that innovation to help others Maybe sometimes that's ill-intended. I, I thought we meet, we met Pete Comfort, and I'm forgetting the name of this thing, but the uh, the blanket that you can pull into <laughs> yourself. I thought that was the Pete Comfort. The Snuggie. The Snuggie. I thought I thought that's when we hit Pete Comfort. Um, but I, I there's there's going to be these distribution. And there's a lot of people out there that you know are suffering it's in the u.s or, or or broadly speaking so you know there's this huge distribution of discomfort i mean but at least in the u.s i think it's just shifted to other places you know you have folks hooked on pain medications now right um we i i just i we were flipping through usually on the weekend we'll find something on you know netflix or kids and um supersized me i never watched that oh yeah uh, i come across that and i was like oh, i never watched this i heard about it and so you know it, it doesn't if you're not familiar with it there's there's a guy that um eats mcdonald's every meal for i don't know i didn't watch the whole thing but i think he maybe lasted a month before um he was gonna die um but they don't talk just about mcdonald's they talk about the food industry that is just really ruined folks in the U.S., you know, the corn syrup and just the, the processed food. So um, depends on how you define comfort, again, short-term or long-term. Um, yeah, those French fries, they taste really good, and they'll last forever if you just let them sit out. Yeah, I think <laughs> I saw some talk show once where some lady brought on a Big Mac from, like, two mm. years prior and it was barely decomposed at all so if that's what it's like just sitting on a shelf imagine in your gut in your gut uh now i'm sure there's uh it's not exactly the same but um <laughs> but yeah there is something to be said for preservatives and just the fact that i mean to your point yeah the, the, the fact that diseases of affluence exist at all is you know to me a hallmark of the evidence that we might be little too comfortable in some of the wrong places uh i did not when i when i said earlier that you know we don't have problems in the world that's yeah. not what i meant obviously yeah. there's of course problems and there's of course you know struggles and individual um issues that we all face every single day i just mean uh the primacy that we place upon avoiding discomfort is 
probably a cause of more discomfort than many people give credence. Um, so having uh, invoked Seneca uh, in your presentation, you then went on to discuss the four cardinal virtues, which I mm. believe were yeah. from Aristotle. If I'm, I'm <laughs> one of those old bearded dudes. Um, so the, the four cardinal virtues are courage, temperance, justice, and wisdom. Um, I think all four are important. Uh, how do you apply those on the day-to-day? Mm. So I've, I read Holiday's book on uh, the first one, Courage. So there's quite a few examples there. And I, I think he wrote that one first just because he viewed it as the most important. And This is actually the order in which I've always heard them. Yeah, I for some reason, cur- yeah. courage, temperance, justice, wisdom. I don't, I don't, yeah. don't know why, but it works. So I would tend to agree, um, and that, you know, that comes up everywhere. But I, I, I talk to our students and faculty about that. You know, anytime I'm in the classroom and I ask a question, you know, if you have enough courage to ask that question, because I know there's a lot of other students that have the same one, um, that's important. That's the, the best way you're going to learn as long as you're willing to expose your ignorance. That's why we're all here to get a little bit better. But that's not easy. Um, and it's not only easy in the classroom, but our, our faculty meetings, you you know, maybe you're first year professor and you have all these senior faculty uh, and you see something that you just totally disagree with. Are you going to have the courage to ask that question? Uh, and so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not perfect in all our meetings, but I, I try to em- emphasize if you're asking earnest questions, then there's no problem in that. Um, it's still hard to do. Yeah, and um, you also went on then to to go into another section um focusing on authenticity and being authentic uh, as a leader and uh, to what you were just talking about, you also went into a rundown uh, of, of things that reduce the chance of success, which I, I think you got that from the Farnham Street blog, mm, yeah. uh, Shane Parrish's blog, which is also, which is just kind of a great compendium of all knowledge, basically. <laughs> the, mm-hmm. the guy is a voracious uh chronicler of so many subjects i'm i'm not trying to be deliberately vague but that just shows how um how much uh the guy uh has has gone in sorry i'm I'm hearing do we have some company in the other room there do you think i don't know i'm i'm hearing some feedback uh i'm wondering if our uh, custodial staff has arrived Mm. for the evening we're recording this at our around right now current time is uh, 6 58 p.m. Eastern, so we're uh, after hours where we usually have uh, some quiet in the evenings, but uh, you always get some pleasant surprises uh, when you're in a shared building. We are actually at the college live right now, so who knows what what you may uh, hear in the background. Um, 
someone may decide to pull the fire alarm at this lovely late hour um, and we would be uh, beholden to that. So um, what was I just talking about? Okay, things that reduce the chance of success. Um, some of these are obvious. You start with the lack of focus, you know, duh. Making excuses, another one that we don't need to go on about forever. Staying up late, eating poorly. This one's interesting. Checking email first thing in the AM. Um, I do that sometimes. Why does that reduce the chance of oh, success? So, yeah, I think maybe someone asked this question or I, I just brought it up at the beginning. And, and I and one of the students, when they do the uh, uh, attendance, they mention this. And I said... Um, do you want to create your own to-do list or do you want to just open your email and let other people create your to-do list for the day? And so that's one thing that I never do is I'll sit down and I'll create my, you know, list of stuff I want to get done for the day. And then I'll open up that email and decide mm. what I'm going to respond to. So you're kind of separating what you've, what you think your running log of to-dos is from what you actually are trying to accomplish that day. Uh, that makes sense. I mean, it also it kind of um, goes in line with a productivity hack that, uh, incidentally, I also got from Farnham Street. Mm. Uh, may have just been some words from Shane Parrish himself, but uh, it's just a simple hack. You take one hour a day, every day, no exceptions, to work on whatever it is that's most pressing to you. One hour on one task. It doesn't necessarily have to be one task. It's just whatever it is that is most pressing. And then he um, advises to uh, see what happens. Um, and that's something I've done. been trying to apply more, but apparently email is counterintuitive to that. Um, I mean, there's many of us who wake up and the first thing we do is check our email and then that immediately zones you in and um but you may not be as actually intently focused on it as you think or you may not be in as control of the situation as you think and that's one of my fears as a employee is uh letting things like email control you when it should be the other way around um moving on the list you uh also have working more to fix being busy could you elaborate that i mean that's i i again i know what you mean by that but uh for our students who, to whom that may not be as a parent, um, what's an example you could yeah, give of that? Well, at least in general, I, I, don't, I don't know if I hear it from our students as much. I do hear it from some younger faculty, and it's like, yeah, I'm really busy. I'm busy. And Everyone's busy. And, you know, I haven't sat down with individual faculty to talk to them, but um, at some point I will soon. And... I ask, is it, are you really busy or are you just not focused on what's most important? And so that, that's the question I usually ask myself is, and, oh yeah, I could say I'm busy, but it's just a matter of what you want to be focused on. Well, yeah, I mean, returning to what we were uh, just talking about, I mean, you yourself, you know, we're all one click away from, uh, being distracted or, or just in the, in the service of procrastination. I mean, even though we don't want to procrastinate, none of us do, it seems to be a natural inclination for many of us, especially, I, I notice this professionals a lot, 
you got that one nagging task in the back of your head. And oftentimes, these are things that really wouldn't take that long if you just sit down and apply yourself to do them. But many of us just don't. And um, doesn't matter how successful you are, it seems to affect everyone, everyone to varying degrees. Um, and I just got an email on that note. So let me go ahead and silence my computer, which I will remember to do next time in advance. But hey, man, we're live. This is what happens. You got a live podcast. Um, the rest of the list is pretty simple. It's just buying things you don't have money for, letting other people define success for you. But you also have focusing on yourself yeah, in there. Yeah, so we get to that one. Yeah, I'm interested because, that again, one of those pieces of advice that people might be inclined to at face value think is counterintuitive. Well, how am I going to get ahead if I don't focus on myself? But what about self-care? What about ignoring my responsibilities because it makes me feel good in the short time? <laughs> it's just, uh, why is focusing on yourself re- reduce the chance that you'll be successful? Yeah, so a student asked me that, and I think one of the first things you mentioned was where he was coming at that from. So th- this is a group of grad students, and they're all here you know, to get better. They're constantly in the lab, just working 70, 80 hours a week. And um, I knew where he was coming from, so I didn't really know where to respond initially. So I had to think about that one. And so the response I either had then or I talked to him later was, I think that comment was a little ambiguous. And so there's two ways you can focus on yourself. You can sit down on the couch with a your Ben and Jerry's ice cream and pop on the Netflix and then enjoy yourself that evening. Or you can focus on yourself by learning something new that's going to make you useful to an employer. Um, And I think the former is what this list was really talking about. You're telling me that you prefer somebody who's useful over somebody who's comfortable? You bigot. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know, we're, we're always for diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, that, that has different interpretations. So, um, yeah, you, you want someone that wants to do something good. Yeah. And on that note, um, if you're studying to be an engineer because you got your mind focused on the, the six figure salary or the cushy tenured position or, you, uh, you're thinking about all the prestige you'll get from all the papers. You're going to be the best in your field. Um, and you're not thinking about solving problems and making the world a better place and leaving it better than it was before you came in. You may not be in the right profession. You're definitely not in the right mindset for that profession anyway. Um, just my two cents. Two cents from a non-engineer. Um, so on that topic, you know, I, I reference the, the group of guys that I run with often, and uh, they're, they're not in my field. They're in all sorts of different areas. And uh, if, you're, if you're on any group me text, you know, you get all sorts of stuff floating back and forth. So we're always uh, trolling each other. And so one of the colleagues in the group sent one directly to me about publishing. And uh, I don't know if it was a TikTok or just some kind of video, 
But the video was basically this guy talking to himself about publishing. He was like, oh, yeah, so you you, you published in one of these uh, fancy journals? Really? That must be really prestigious. They must have paid you a lot to write that journal. And then it turns to himself as the, the counter argument. It's like, uh, yeah, but um, no, they, they don't pay me to, to write this. And you're like, oh, okay. But... Um, you know, and he goes through this whole argument on that, and yeah, it's it's not that cracked up to what it is. I I will say, you know, that was a joke that they were, you know, getting at me at. Um, it it is good to get disseminate that work, so that that is useful. Mainly, or a lot of it is to to train our students, so they're better communicators. But um, if you if you take it too seriously um that's not why you want to get into the profession um you you want to do it to hopefully learn something hopefully it's going to be useful to help someone but there's a lot of journal papers out there and so whether that's that that let me let me put it this way that that shouldn't be your your ultimate goal is to get some paper into nature or science or whatever. Um, and in our field, hopefully it's to, to mentor some of these younger students so they go out there and they do some awesome things. So why did you become an engineer on that note? Not mm, to put you on the yeah, spot. <laughs> yeah. um, I guess if you start all the way back at the beginning on that Venn diagram. So yeah. I was pretty good at math and pretty good at solving problems. Now, <clears throat> I wasn't sure if I really wanted to be an engineer, but I, I, went, I went to a smaller school, was able to play baseball there, and I, I had a plan to get a dual degree in engineering. But once I got to the point where I had to decide a major, so I was going to transfer into this university, um, they had this big list of all these different things. And uh, this is like... This is uh, mid-90s, and so internet was just turning the corner, so I had no idea what all these different engineering disciplines were. So I was like, civil engineering, what is that? No idea. <laughs> so was, I've been playing baseball and just learning basic physics. I had no idea what these things were. Um, Man says basic physics as if it's not going to go over the heads of... Physics one, like something you're going to learn as a freshman. Um and so there was electrical engineering. I was like, oh, I know what that is, and I can't see electrons, so I'm more of a visual learner. So my dad was a, a diesel mechanic, and so I saw this thing called mechanical engineering. So it's like, all right, I guess hopefully I can learn that, check that box, and then I went to Atlanta, Georgia Tech, and you know, the rest is history. So in other words, you did it to get checks, right? <laughs> pretty much you know there there's private schools around atlanta um but they're not at georgia tech not as many maybe it's changed since since then but at the time yeah yeah i'm just messing with you man but um <laughs> but yeah and in other words though you didn't do it because you were thinking about i mean you were thinking about yourself as far as your career trajectory but you weren't doing it 
for the fame, the money, or the prestige. Uh, no, I just like building stuff. I, I knew you you could make a decent living. I wasn't gonna uh, wasn't gonna starve, uh, but I just like building no. cool stuff. Did you always have a passion for? Uh, and I'm not trying to blow smoke here, boss. Um, <laughs> for mentoring students, because you do have a talent for that. That is something that I mean, yeah, folks. This man. I'm speaking to right here has an open door policy for his students to just walk in on him at all hours of the day. And, um, I've seen firsthand, uh, every day how committed he is to, uh, you know, no problems too small, uh, to be addressed and taken seriously. Um, if you're one of his students and, uh, you don't see that in all faculty, but, um, it is heartening to see that, even in a, a big institution like ours, you can still get quality one-on-one time irrespective of office hours. But um, obviously when you were just starting out to become an engineer, I don't, I, maybe you didn't have that right away, but when did you realize you had a real passion for, specifically for helping students mm-hmm. and mentoring them? Yeah, well, I appreciate that. Um, I mean, when... Before I got to Georgia Tech, when I would, I'm trying to remember when I was doing this. Um, I used to do this thing where I was a substitute teacher, only in high school. I couldn't do lower. I couldn't do middle school, as we mentioned before. Those kids are just awful. But <laughs> I would, I would do that. I, I would come back in the summer and I would coach um, summer baseball teams. Um, so yeah. I just like mentoring others and things that I was at least semi-decent at. So I always enjoyed seeing others mature and be successful. And so same thing here. That's that's the one thing I enjoy about the job is being able to mentor and, and help others. Um, it doesn't get any better than that. Yeah, you've mentioned that your least favorite part of the job is uh – the part that I get to see nine hours a day, um, <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, the administrative grind, um, which is a grind irrespective of what industry you're in. Um, the reason I asked about mentorship, though, is, of course, because the next thing you went into in your talk mm. was uh, about the importance of having an <clears throat> anti-mentor, which is uh, uh, something I had not heard of before. Um, it makes sense. Uh, when the uh, concept was explained to me, but what is an anti-mentor, an anti-mentor, and why are they important to have? I mean, this is obviously the way it was explained in the video you shared, which uh, I'm having a hard time pulling up right now. It was from a, a psychologist, I believe, or a yeah. philosopher. So, yeah, so Bill this Wright. one was this one I um, I pulled from Shane Parrish's website, I believe. It was uh, William Irvine. Uh, professor, and I forget where he's a professor. But uh, Bill he's Irvine, a, yeah. He's an expert in uh, stoicism. So he talks about difference in mentor, which we all, I believe, know, versus anti-mentor. And I, I, I think the best way to describe it is the example of when your, your parents would tell you, yeah, you should be careful with the group that you hang out with. You get caught up in the wrong group, you're going to lead down the wrong path. And so that that's... Um, Irvine's description there is this anti-mentor is a person that's playing a game that you really don't want to be playing 
And so if you understand it and you can recognize it and you don't go down that path, like, oh, this is the person that, that has this fancy house, fancy car, and clothes, whatever, um, and, you know, maybe that's something you like. But if, if that's not really your thing, what you're focused on, then that's not really the, the person that you want to be taking advice from. So that's that's the basic idea. Yeah, maybe the wealthiest. <laughs>